Okay, we're, we're in the Word of God, Ephes, uh, I'm sorry, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Tonight, as we continue along in this uh, most amazing book uh, written by Solomon, let's pray and ask God to um, bless our time in the Word and, and prepare our hearts to hear His voice. So Father, we uh, just thank you so much for um, the privilege that we have uh, not just to, to sit in freedom and to study the Word, but that we have the Spirit of God to teach it to us and to connect it with our hearts and our lives in a way that only you can, because you know us in a way that no one else does. And so, Lord, as we do that now, we pray that you'd settle our hearts. We ask that you would uh, give us an, a, a strength and an awakefulness, Lord, that we would hear what you want to say to us tonight. And we pray, Father, that you would have your way in the service and in this time. And so we just uh, thank you so much for it. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. So it was um, a couple of weeks ago, and it was just before the uh, kind of the cold snap that comes every year. And um, there was this yearly homecoming that we experienced at our house. And maybe this is a familiar thing for some of you here as well. Uh, I pray not all of you, but it was the homecoming of the stink bugs. And somehow they get out uh, in the early part of the, the spring and then into the summer. But then there's always a day uh, in September when they realize that they need to seek shelter and they all come to my house. And, and there's like a two or three day period where uh, it literally looks like a screen of these things just envelops my entire home. You know, they're just everywhere. They're crawling on uh, things. I mean, they get into everything. They get in the house. They get in the stuff. I ate one. There was one literally in the refried beans. Like, and, and I was that guy. There's seven of us, but it was me. I ate one. Um, you know, they're, they're crazy. There was a time I was standing in the back in the sound booth during a service, and I, I, was, I had my hand in my pocket, and I thought it was a gum wrapper. And I was sitting there, and I was squishing it, and all of a sudden, it was wet. And I thought, that's not a gum wrapper. And I kind of knew what it was before I even took it out of my, my pocket, you know. But sure enough, it was one of those, those things, you know, those stink bugs, those crazy Chinese uh, weapons of mass destruction and infiltration, you know, that, that we have here now. But uh, it was during that time that I was sitting at, at my, a desk I have in a room in our house, and as I was there, there was a single stink bug, and it was stuck in the cavity um, between the screen and the glass of a closed window. And so this stink bug was kind of crawling up the screen, and, and what it was doing is it was repeatedly trying to get out. And so it would crawl up the screen, and then it would take off, boom, slam into the glass, and then come back to the screen. Crawl around to another place, take off, boom, slam into the glass, and then come back. And, and it kept on doing this, and I started to really take joy in this whole thing happening. You know, but then I actually started to feel sorry for the stink bug in some small and minor way, not because I felt bad for the stink bug, but because I could relate to it in, 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 a, in a manner. You know, here's this creature, and it's looking out this window, and it sees this paradise, and it just knows that it's out there. There's trees, and there's sunlight, and there's fresh air, and there's freedom, and there's this vast expanse of flying room and things to explore and there's probably some food somewhere something to eat and 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 it just knows that there's freedom and it can even see it but no matter how hard it tries 
it just keeps smashing into this invisible wall and this paradise actually starts to feel more like a lie, a promise of something that I can almost see, but I can never get there. And I have felt like that at times in my life where I feel like I'm stuck in this cavity where I can see, I can almost see with my eyes that there is a life outside of where I'm stuck, that there's something beyond, there's something to experience, there's, there's a purpose greater than me bouncing back and forth in this small area uh, that I don't understand and that I can't really interpret. And I, and I felt kind of an affinity with that stink bug in that moment. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. I don't know if you've ever had a season of your life. Maybe you're in a season of your life where you feel like that right now, where you kind of feel like you're crawling in this cavity and you know that somewhere out there, there's something that satisfies, but you just can't reach it. And I know for me that when I'm in that place or when I have been in that place in the past, I always search out the reason. Well, what's the reason why I'm stuck in here? And then I begin to come up with things. I think, well, I'm kind of stuck in here because I don't have enough money to buy my way out. And so if I had enough money and I could kind of move things around a little bit, then I could find a way out of this. Sometimes I think it's opportunity. I think if I had the right opportunities, maybe if I was brought up in a different setting or if I uh, you know, was kind of um, brought up in a different place or if I was more privileged, and it's, just a, it's an issue of opportunity, and because I don't have the opportunity that maybe someone more fortunate than myself does, I'm stuck in this place. Sometimes I might think it's education or sometimes I might think it's natural ability. I don't have the talent that other people have, but if I did have those talents, then maybe I could uh, get out of this place. I could be free, so to speak. And I begin to kind of um, almost excuse the fact that I'm stuck based on the fact that I lack certain things that maybe I don't have, but thinking that if I had all of those things, that then I wouldn't be stuck here that I would be free, that I would be out there. Well, the amazing thing about the chapter that we're in tonight in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is that we have a man, his name is King Solomon. And the man who wrote chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes is limited by absolutely nothing. He's a man of great resource. He's a man of great wisdom. He was given wisdom by God. It's not even a byproduct of his education. There was a grace that God placed upon his life wherein literally he was mentally limitless in what he could figure out and what he could accomplish and do. For him, he had every opportunity. He was the king and he was the king of the greatest and most powerful empire of his day. And so he had opportunity. It wasn't just that, but he also had natural ability. I mean, people would come to hear what he would have to say about just about every subject, and he had everything that it takes. He had people skills, he had book skills, he had business skills. There was nothing that this man lacked. And yet, even in the position that he was in, having all of that, he found himself stuck in this cavity, this space between the screen and the glass, and he couldn't find his way out of there. But in that place, he thought to himself, I'm going to figure this out. And maybe, you, maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you have been in that place, and you've said, I'm going to figure this out. I'm getting out of this cavity, out of this trap. I am going to figure out what's out there 
this elusive promise of a satisfied life, I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to find it. And that's exactly what Solomon has done. And uh, maybe you, like him, have hit your head on the glass a few times uh, trying to figure it out. And so uh, chapter 2 is we're going to follow Solomon, and Solomon here is going to start banging his head on the glass as he seeks to try to figure out what it is that actually satisfies. Where is the purpose of life? Where is the escape hatch that lets me out of this prison and gets me into freedom? Now, the name of this message is Caught Between the Screen and the Glass. And that's actually the second title because the first title that I gave this message at the beginning was uh, I Keep Hitting My Head on the Glass Ceiling. But something inside of me said, look that up and find out what that means because I know I've heard that phrase before, the glass ceiling. And when I did, I realized that's not a good title for this message. So it's called uh, Caught Between the Screen and the Glass. But let's uh, look at this. Let's read the chapter together what Solomon writes here, and then we'll examine his search and what it is that he found. It tells us in verse 1, Solomon says that he said in his heart, go to now or go forth now, and I will prove you or test you with mirth or with pleasure. Therefore, enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity or emptiness." And I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth or pleasure, what does it do? Then I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting my heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. So he tells us what it is that he's trying to do. He's trying to find that good thing that we could live for, that would define the purpose of what life is all about. That's what he's trying to do. And he begins with pleasure. He considers wine. And then he moves on in verse 4. And he says, I made me great works. I built me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards. And I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that brings forth the trees. And so uh, um, gardens and vineyards and cisterns and pools and aqueducts. And then verse 7, he says, I got me servants, slaves and maidens, uh, you know, both male and female servants and servants born in my house. And I also had great possessions of great and small cattle or livestock above all that were before me in Jerusalem. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me singers Men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. And so all of the possessions that he gathered to himself. So he said that I was great and I increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me and whatsoever my eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy for my heart rejoiced in all my labor and this was my portion of all my labor. I deserved everything that I obtained. Then, verse 11, I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor which I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity or emptiness. 
and vexation, that is confusion or frustration of spirit, and there was no profit or no benefit of any of those things under the sun. And so I turned myself from there to behold wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do that comes after the king, even that which is already done? There's nowhere else for me to climb, and there's nowhere for anyone that comes after me to climb. I've reached the very top of things. And so I saw that wisdom exceeds folly as far as light exceeds darkness because the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and I myself perceived also that one event happens to them all. Then I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, so it happens even to me, that is death. And why was I then more wise? So then I said in my heart that this also is vanity, for there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever, seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dies the wise man? Just like the fool. Therefore, conclusions now, verse 17. I hated life because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. And who knows whether he shall be a wise man or a fool. Yet shall he have rule over all my labor, wherein I have labored and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Therefore, I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity. He does things right. Yet to a man that has not labored, therein shall he leave it for his portion. He's going to leave it to someone who's a fool. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what has man of all his labor and of the frustration of his heart wherein he has labored under the sun. For all his days are sorrows, and his labor grief. Yea, his heart takes no rest in the night. This also is vanity or emptiness. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. For who can eat? Or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? In other words, who can indulge, who can bless himself, and who can come to this conclusion that I have come to more than I? Solomon asks himself the question. For God gives to a man that which is good in his sight, wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he gives travail or labor, to gather and to heap up, that he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity or emptiness and vexation or frustration of spirit. And so Solomon now um, writes this chapter. He gives to us the testimony of this, and it really breaks down into three parts on things. First of all, there is the search that's highlighted for us in the first 10 verses where Solomon is just trying things to break free, break through this glass and to find the meaning and the purpose of life. He then moves in the second segment of the chapter, verses 11 through verse 16, to his assessment of his search 
the conclusions kind of uh, mentally that he came to in this vast search for purpose and meaning. And then finally, verses 17 through 26, he gives to us the outcome or the result, what this did in his life uh, as he sought to find this thing. Now, I imagine in my mind as I read this chapter and I, and I think about what this was like for Solomon, I imagine this kind of long corridor, this long hallway kind of called life. And on the left hand and on the right hand are just doors lining each side of the wall. And Solomon kind of sees himself in this hallway and he decides, I'm going to figure out which one of these doors is the correct door that's going to answer this great question of purpose and this longing for freedom and satisfaction that I have inside my heart. And I'm going to use all of my resources, all of my wisdom, all of my time, everything that I have at my disposal, I am going to use to try to answer this question on behalf of a humanity that wants to know the answer to this question, what satisfies? What is the meaning of life? Where is freedom found? And what Solomon does in his search, in these first 10 verses, is that he chooses five doors, because nobody can open every door. I mean, there just isn't enough time in a lifetime to walk down every avenue. But he chooses probably the five doors that you and I are most likely to think would be the right door where we're going to find some satisfaction or some life. And he goes one by one through these doors in his search, trying to find out which is going to uh, yield on the promise of having life. And so what are the five doors that Solomon uh, opens and things that he tries in his search for satisfaction? The first one is given to us in verses 1 and 2, and it really sums, uh, sums up to be a carefree life. He thinks... If I'm going to be satisfied, if there's satisfaction to be found in this world, it's going to be found in having a life that's free of care, free of worry, free of stress, free of pressure. I'm just going to live a life without any cares at all. He talks about seeking after pleasure, laughter, and a sense of general apathy. He says, I'm going to live a life and I'm going to have with all of my money and all of my power and all of my permission to do whatever I want, I'm going to live an ivory tower kind of a life. I'm going to live a life of privileged seclusion from the facts and practicalities of the real world. I'm going to go to college for the rest of my life, essentially is what Solomon says. I'm just going to spend my life thinking that I'm doing something, but in reality, I'm excluded from anything that's really practical uh, and really real. But here was what Solomon uh, was thinking. Here was his theory in seeking after life in this manner, is that he thought is that if I can live a life without pressure, then that will be a life of always feeling pleasure. If I can live without pressure, then that means I'll always feel pleasure. But the conclusion that he came to in that pursuit is that it's an empty life, and the reason why that's an empty life is because it's an unproductive life. And that's what he says there at the end of verse uh, 1. He says, or at the end of verse 2, he says, what doeth it? What does it do? In other words, I lived this life for a while. I freed myself from every source of stress, and I just lived for only those things that please me. 
But what I came to at the end of it is that I realized deep down inside that I was made for more than to just coast through life without feeling any stress. If I don't feel any stress, I'm not going to do anything productive. And he said, I might not know the meaning of life, but I do know that the meaning of life is not to do nothing. He thought it was, but he found that it wasn't. Do you know what we call things that take up space but serve no purpose at all? Weeds. But did someone just say children? <laughs> no, it's not children. It's weeds. Right? I mean, we, we go out in our yard and we see these things and they're just an eyesore and they produce nothing except more weeds that just take up more space, but they yield absolutely no good purpose. Now, I know that there's someone here who's a, a you know, kind of naturopathic in things and they're going to say, you know, you're wrong about that. You know, uh, we can make a poultice. We can, you know, okay, you win. All right. You win the argument, but I'm going to make the point. <laughs> the point is this, is that human beings are not weeds. And we were not designed by God, and we will not find our purpose in doing absolutely nothing. We were made full of productivity. We are ready to explode with things that are expressive and creative and meaningful. And there's a purpose beyond our existence outside of living just to experience only pleasure. And here's the reality. Here's the fact, the application of the point is that there is no productivity without feeling pressure. It's just a fact of living in a fallen world, is that if you don't feel it, then you can't produce it. And the problem is that you can get stuck in this cycle of just existing and yet doing nothing, and yet you'll miss out on your purpose and the thing that God has called you to do. So he tries a carefully free life, and he finds that it is emptiness. The second thing that Solomon tries as he moves down the hallway, uh, and he doesn't quite go into the second door, but he does put his hand on the handle, and he's tempted to go in it, but he doesn't go in it, is a life of substance-induced numbness. He says in verse 3 that he, look, notice the language because it's very important. He says that I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine. In other words, he asked himself if this was a good idea. He said, I, I searched in my heart, should I give myself to wine? Can I try a substance-induced numbness as a means of finding satisfaction in my life? But yet notice the answer that he gave to himself. He said, yet acquainting my heart with wisdom and to lay hold on folly. And the idea is that he didn't go down that path. He was tempted to, but he didn't do it. He didn't think that was going to be a good idea because he was wise. And he had enough wisdom in his heart to know without opening that door that it was not going to be a good outcome and that he wasn't going to find the thing that he was trying to find by going down that path. I'm so thankful that Solomon was wise. How many of you here tonight have ever had your hand on a door handle of something that you were about to open up your life into or allow yourself to go into, and before you did it, there was something inside a small voice maybe that just said, you don't want to go down that, that hallway. You don't want to open that door. It's not going to work out and it's not going to be what you think it's going to be. If you've ever had that experience, just praise God and thank God for it. 
because Solomon did that here. He thought, maybe I'll just drink wine and I'll just bury out this pain and this voice that I feel inside by, by drowning it in alcohol or drowning it in some substance. You can just fill in the addictive uh, practice or substance or behavior of your choice there. It might not be wine. But Solomon in this moment was tempted to do it, and yet his wisdom kept him from it. There's a verse I love that Jesus uh, gave, a, a phrase that Jesus gave. It's Luke chapter 7, verse 35, and it says this, very simple. It just says that wisdom is justified by her children. And for the longest time, that was kind of like one of those riddles to me. Like, Lord, what exactly did you mean by that? But it's really quite simple what Jesus was saying there. And I, and I had them put it up there in form of a quote so you could just see it uh, and look at it. But basically, what Jesus was saying there is that the quality of the life a lifestyle produces reveals the quality of that lifestyle. I'm going to say it again. The quality of the life a lifestyle produces reveals the quality of that lifestyle. In other words, Solomon, in his lifetime, he knew a few people that were given to wine. He knew a few people that were relying on outside substances as the means of their satisfaction or their numbness. And he was able to equate the kind of people that they were and the kind of life that they were living with the behavior that was causing them to have that kind of life. And he realized, I shouldn't expect that it's going to be any different for me. That if I embrace the lifestyle that produces this kind of life, then my life is going to look like what that lifestyle produces. Wisdom is justified over children. And Solomon realized, I don't want to go down that path. Here's the problem with using a substance to produce a feeling, a feeling of satisfaction or a feeling of numbness or even a feeling of productivity or a feeling of anything that I might be searching for in, 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 in embracing a substance to do it, is that as soon as I introduce a substance into my body, I have now created, whether I had one before or not, an appetite for that substance. So now my body's going to ask for it and it's going to require it in order to produce the outcome that I'm seeking after. The second thing, not just an appetite, but our bodies are also extremely adaptive, meaning that they don't respond the same way all the time to the things that we take in. They change. And so not only now is there an appetite, but there's also this elusive chasing after of something that I may or may not obtain by putting the substance into my body or into my life. And when you have appetite plus adaptiveness, you have the perfect recipe for what will become an addiction. And that life is going to be characterized by a roller coaster instability that has a general trend downward because the lows continue to get lower and the highs are never quite enough and it's an extremely dangerous place to be. I remember hearing one time someone say something that just stuck in my mind and I'm so thankful that of all the things that I heard and have forgotten, I've remembered this. They asked the question, they simply said, if you put a caged rat on drugs, do you know what you get? A perfectly happy caged rat. And, 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 you know, there's some people that will say, well, that sounds good. I mean, if the rat's happy, you know, but it doesn't exactly work like that. That's not exactly how it plays out in the long run. And if you've ever known someone that's been caught in that cage, 
and you know that that's absolutely right. Solomon takes his hand off that doorknob and he moves a little bit further down the hall and he decides he's going to try a third thing and that is that he's going to seek satisfaction through self-expression. And it's given to us in verses 4 through 6. And, it, and the word that you'll see used over and over again in those verses is the word made. So his creative powers and the things that he can create with his hands. And he lists the things there. He says, I made houses, I made vineyards, I made gardens, I made orchards, I made nurseries. Then I made pools and aqueducts in order to water and, and care for those, uh, those nurseries and those things that I had made. And he, he sought for a while, for a long season of his life, to find satisfaction through the things that he could make or create or the work that he was doing with his hands. When Solomon first ascended to the throne, his first task as king was to build the temple. David had provided all of the materials and the plans, and it was Solomon's job to assemble the labor force and to make the project happen. And it took Solomon seven years. It was the first seven years of his reign that he built the house of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. But something happened in that season when he was doing that, and he was inspired to keep going. And he left off from the temple project, and he began building his own house, and he spent 14 years building his own palace. But when he was finished with that, he wasn't done. The pool of inspiration was only half-tapped. And so he kept on creating, and he built houses in the forests, and houses in the city, and then houses for his wives. And then, of course, the vineyards, and the gardens, and the aqueducts, and all of these things. And what Solomon found in this is he found a source of inspiration. There was something satisfying on the inside when he would create. He found a niche, or a gift, or a talent, something that he could do better, maybe, than other people. And it became for him a source of satisfaction. And that's not necessarily completely a bad thing, but there's an inherent danger in it. And it is this. Is that when the thing that inspires me becomes, and it happens subtly, but it happens, when it becomes my identity, or when the thing that I do becomes the definition of my value, then I've come to a dangerous place. And here's why. Because what I have discovered, and maybe you have too, is that inspiration is a lot more like a cistern than a well. In other words, inspiration isn't something that I can just turn on and off at will. It's something that's there, and when it's there, it's great. But eventually that pool, that cistern of inspiration dries up. And when it does... What used to be a joy now becomes a job. And I find myself laboring to try to produce something that used to come very naturally and very easily. And that can happen, and that's normal. But here's the danger. If I've made what I do my identity, and I find my satisfaction and my life and my purpose in my value in what I do, then when the inspiration dries up and it's no longer a joy but a job... The danger is that if I stop creating, if I stop producing because that is my identity, then that means I die too because that's who I am. That's a dangerous and scary place to be. Inspiration doesn't last forever. You ever hear a band or a musical artist that tries to come up with a comeback album? 
and you realize when you listen to it, hey, man, the pool of inspiration has dried up. You've run your course. Sometimes my kids like to, to, to binge watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you know. And I really think that the source of inspiration dried up after the first movie. And they just kept that thing going. I mean, you got three of them, and then you got the prequels, you got the Hobbit and the whole thing. And, and sometimes I'll walk in the room and I'm like, hey, what's going on? Are they going for a walk again? You know? Oh, they're going for a walk. What's the plot of this one? Oh, they're going for a walk. You know, they're walking. Oh, there's mountains and landscapes. Oh, they're walking. You know, and it's like, man, sometimes it's time to let go. You know, be careful when inspiration uh, becomes your identity. That was the issue that happened here in the whole thing, and uh, and he sought fulfillment in it, and it worked for a long time, but what he used to love became empty as it didn't ultimately satisfy. He moves on from there. Maybe you could say he didn't move on, but he moved deeper into it, uh, and he decided that no longer will it be the self-expression of what I can make, but now I'm going to try the acquisition of materials and wealth. That's going to be where I find life, and it's in verses 7 and 8, and it says that Solomon had male and female servants. He had livestock. He had silver and gold, which when you read the amounts of silver and gold that Solomon had, it was what we would call stupid wealth. In verse 8, it also uses the words, the delights of the sons of men, which many translations uh, will just say the women that Solomon had, 700 wives, 300 concubines, uh, that, that Solomon sought. He, he, he thought, it's gonna, I'm going to find it there. And, and well, he didn't. <laughs> and then he, he talks about the orchestra that he built, the musical instruments that he obtained, and then the things that he didn't withhold from himself. In verse 11, he actually says that he, uh, he kept back nothing. Or he says it in verse 10, that he withheld nothing that he wanted uh, from himself. And so what Solomon did at this point is that he decided, I am just going to make myself so overloaded with everything I want, I am going to satisfy my life with material things. And so he started businesses, importing and exporting businesses we read about. He became an infopreneur, an author and a speaker, and he would speak on various subjects and people would come from all over and he was greatly sought after. He was kind of what you would expect to see if you took Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, and Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, and Tony Robbins, the motivational uh, guru, and if you just put all of their collective talent in one body, and then you bring in a whole bunch of other people too, that is who Solomon was. And he said, I am just going to work every angle and talent I have and I am going to obtain everything that I can. And he just did it all for the sake of obtaining wealth and possessions. And he did. I mean, he had the most hopping Amazon account you have ever seen. I mean, the prime truck was at his house every single day. And after a while, it started to get weird. I mean, he started importing monkeys, peacocks. I mean, you read the things that he did. He just got bored. He started coating animals with gold. He was so bored with the things. There's just nothing that he could get anymore. <laughs> and, uh, and then at the peak of all of this, when that didn't satisfy, he tried the final thing that he lists for us in verses 9 and 10, and that is that he sought to bask in the reputation that his success and his achievements afforded him. He talks about how great he was in verse 9. He talks about his success, his wealth, his wisdom, 
And in that portion of his life, he sought fulfillment and satisfaction in the fact that everybody was looking at him as the example of what they wanted to be. And he allowed the admiration of others and their perception of his greatness to be food that fed his soul, that fed his ego. And he he sought satisfaction in it. He was the subject study of every book. He was the feature of every podcast. He was highlighted on every YouTube channel. He had more Instagram followers than anybody in the history of social media. His proverbs were the most retweeted things <laughs> that, 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 that anybody had ever, ha, ever known of. And everything in his life was just oozing success. Everybody wanted to be King Solomon. And on the outside, he appeared extremely healthy and whole as though he obtained. But on the inside, his soul was eroding away. And so he tries literally everything he can get his hands on to satisfy this longing that he has inside, and all he has on the other side of it are bumps and bruises on his head from smashing into the glass again and again and again. And then he gives us his assessment, starting in verse 10, as he's standing on the top of this mountain that all of humanity is seeking to climb. And notice what he says, uh, notice at the end of verse 10, he says that my heart rejoiced in all my labor, for this was my portion of all my labor. That means this. It means for a little while, I was satisfied. For a little while, it worked. I stood on top of this great mountain and I looked at all that I had, everything that I had obtained and accomplished. I looked at all the followers, all the people that were praising me, and boy, it was good for about a day. It lasted for a very short period of time, but that quickly faded. And notice what it says in verse 11. He says, Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all of it was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. There was a strange emptiness about it all. That's vanity. There was a vexation, a confusion, a frustration, a brain fog that came with it. And I realized that for all that I had obtained and everything that I'd accomplished, there was no lasting benefit in any of it at all. Do you know there's a universal expression that you'll hear come out of the lips of those that reach the top in any given field or category? Do you know what they'll say? They'll say, it's not what I thought it was going to be. The person who has all the money the person who's made it to the big chair in their company, they all say the same thing. The person who has the Grammy, that wins the top awards at the CMA, they get to where they chased and, and, and fought to arrive. And they all say the same thing. It's not what I thought it would be. And that's exactly what Solomon says as he stands upon the top of all that everyone wants. He, it's not what I thought. Being married to her, it's not what I thought it was going to be. Being married isn't what I thought it was going to be. Having this job, this position, that it's it's not what I thought it was going to be. Living in that house that that I was so excited about getting when we got it, it's just not what I thought it was going to be. Being popular and sought after, it just just isn't what I thought. I, I, I had this thing in my mind, but it's not what I thought it was going to be, and it's exactly what Solomon says. And so he stands there, and he looks down from where he is, and he says, it's empty. It doesn't satisfy. 
Then he turns. He just turns. He's standing still on the same mountain. He's way on top of it all. And he turns and he looks in another direction. And he says, I'm going to consider, verse 12, he says, I'm going to consider wisdom and madness and folly. And he comes to his second conclusion. His second conclusion is that all of this that I've obtained and accomplished cannot be the meaning of life. And here's why it can't be the meaning of life is because not everyone has the opportunity to do what I've done. That's what he means in verse 12 when he says that what can the man do that comes after the king? In other words, who can, who can even amass a portion of what I've amassed? And, and if I'm not satisfied having done all that I have, then how can someone who will never have the opportunity to climb even half this high find satisfaction in any of these things? He says this can't be the meaning of life. The third conclusion that he comes to as he turns another 90 degrees and looks from that view up there, he tells us in verses 13 and 14 that it's still better to be wise than to be foolish. And the reason that he gives for that in verse 14 is because if you have wisdom, then at least your eyes are in your head. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. In other words, at least if you have a little bit of wisdom, then you'll climb for a little while, you'll be unsatisfied, and you'll realize that you're chasing the wrong thing. If you don't have that kind of wisdom, then you'll just chase that dream your whole life, and you'll, you'll waste your whole life chasing something you can never have. And so he says wisdom is still better than folly. Thank Jesus for the wisdom that he gives us. And then fourthly, the fourth uh, conclusion that he comes to or um, point of analysis that he makes in verses 15 and 16 is that he says from here on top of this mountain when I look down at all of this I realize a very important truth is that it doesn't matter if you're wise or whether you're foolish or whether you're crazy it doesn't matter if you climb or whether you spin or whether you sit it doesn't matter if you go slow or if you go fast Everyone ends up in the same place, dead, with absolutely nothing to show for what they did or didn't do on the other side of it. The fool, the wise man, the crazy, the lazy, the diligent, the brilliant, we all die. And we can't take any of it with us, no matter what we obtain, we pass it on to someone else. Do you know that's a bittersweet day when you realize that? I mean, I hope it doesn't take till you get to the top of that mountain to realize that you're going to die and that you can't take anything with you that you obtain in this lifetime. But it's a bittersweet day when you do realize it. It's bitter because you realize, man, this world is so temporary and it's so fleeting. And really, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter much what I do. But it's kind of sweet because if you have even a little bit of wisdom and perspective when you realize that, then it leads you to the conclusion that the purpose of life must be something that's outside of what this world promises and gives. So it's sweet in that respect. It doesn't mean you're going to find it yet. Solomon certainly did it. What was the result? And I know it's, we're almost done, you know, but we're winding down. We're not going to read all these verses. What was the result of Solomon's quest? First his search and then his analysis. What was the result of all of this? He says three things now that he's here. In verse 17, he says, I hated life. In verse 18, he says, I hate my job. And in verse 20, he says, and I'm depressed. And I don't know, is there anyone here? <laughs> I hate my life. I hate my job. And I'm depressed. 
Maybe you've been at that point sometime in your life where you say, I hate my life, I hate my job, and I'm depressed. He tells us that he hates his life because it's empty and frustrating. He tells us that he hates his work because it's empty and he doesn't get to keep anything that he earns. And he says that he's depressed because he's frustrated, he's tired, and that life isn't fair. And that brings you all the way down to the end of verse 23. He says, my life is filled with stuff I don't need that I bought with money that I don't have to impress people that I don't like. And it's empty. And I don't like it. And then he says in verse 24, he says that the best thing that a human being can have on this side of the sun is that they're content with what they've got. Notice what he says in verse 24. He says, there is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This I saw, that it was also from the hand of God. Blessed is the person who is just content with what they have. (laughs) And he's right about that, (laughs) certainly. And so his conclusion there is right. But then in verse 25, and this is where we bring things to a close, he says something that is absolutely wrong. He's right. You know, you're, you're blessed if you're content. But then he says something in verse 25. Notice what he says. He says, for who can eat or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? In other words, no one in this life is more qualified than me to come to these conclusions. Because I have the unique ability to experience more than anybody else can experience because of the position and the resources that God has afforded me. But here's his subtle conclusion that he's making. He's saying, if I cannot find the purpose of life, then that must mean that there isn't one. If I can't find the thing that satisfies, that means nothing satisfies. If I can't penetrate this glass barrier that's keeping me from experiencing something that I know is out there, then that must mean no one can get through this barrier and experience what's out there. It doesn't exist. And you know what? He's wrong. He's dead wrong about this. Why? Because you realize there's another door in this hallway? There's a door in this hallway of life, a door that you and I can see as well as he could see. It's visible from every place that you're at. It's humble. It's simple, it's unassuming, and there are very few people that ever approach that door. You know what door it is? It's, it's got big glowing letters right on top of it. It's right there. You know what it says? Exit. No, it doesn't say exit. You know what it says? It says Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 9, he said, I am the door. And if By me, any man shall enter in, he shall be saved, and he will go in and out, and he will find pasture. He went further than that. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said this. Jesus said unto them, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. Not only am I the door, but I'm the path. I'm the way, and if you come by me, you're going to find passage. You're going to find your way out of here. It's an amazing thing that we see in Jesus. You know why Jesus is so amazing? Because Jesus disproves Solomon's theory that everyone just dies and passes on. Solomon's going to die and just pass on. 
The great men of the world have died and have passed on. Their legacy has faded with the years, many to never be remembered again. Those that have made the hall of fame and that have attained the greatness of life. But there's one name, there's one man that hasn't died. He died, but he rose. And his name still endures. His name is Jesus, and it hasn't been forgotten. It hasn't been buried in the channels of history. It endures, and it continues. See, the great men of the world, their work came on the scene. It crested, and then it ceased because they perished. But Jesus, he came on the scene. His work crested, and that was just the beginning. And he's still working. He's still moving in lives. He's still changing because he cannot die, and he never dies. And here's what Jesus does. He gives the quiet invitation to whosoever will hear it that we can come. And we can leave the circus and the empty chasing after pleasure that this world calls us to. And we can open the door of salvation that he has provided the way for. And in that, we can come to him. What we find is the forgiveness of sins and we find that he reverses the curse and he brings relationship and satisfaction. And the thing that caused emptiness, the sin that started it all, is now reversed as we come into a relationship with him. And you know what he does? Is that he makes us, he changes us from being puddle jumpers, that is, looking for the next little thing that's going to satisfy and draining that pool empty and looking for the next one, to well drinkers. Jesus said these words in John chapter 7. He said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Out of his belly, out of his innermost beings, will flow torrents of living water. You know what happens when a person comes to Jesus? Is that he becomes the source of life. He doesn't just give purpose, he becomes purpose. And all of life is found in him. And everything else then becomes a joy and not a frustration. It's full and not empty because it's Jesus that's doing it. And so when I have free time, I enjoy the free time because it's free time that he's afforded and that he's walking with me and I don't feel guilty because I'm being unproductive. When I'm creating with my hands, the source of my inspiration is not something that I find within myself, but it's my relationship with him. It's walking with him and working with him in the thing that he made me to do. And I sense his pleasure in what I'm doing because he's doing it through me. And inspiration becomes a well. Now I'm doing it in him, and it's totally different. It's not the same as it was before. The stuff that's around me that I see in the world, rather than wanting it and thinking that it's going to do something for me, I see it for what it truly is. And I have the right perspective. You know what, you know what stuff is in this world, really? A house, a car, a boat, clothes. Do you know what it, you know what it is? You ever go to Chuck E. Cheese and you see behind the counter and you see all these kids that are like, you know, shooting baskets so that tickets spit out of the machines. They're like, yeah, you know, and someone hits the jackpot and they pop the balloon and it's like 4,000 tickets. They're like, yeah, yeah. And all the other kids are going, oh, I should have been that. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's not fair. You know, that's my wealth you have there. And the kid's like, yeah, I got tickets. And then he goes up to the counter. And he's like, okay, I want a Tootsie Roll. I want a kazoo. And I want a little water gun necklace. And I want, you know, and this whole thing. And everybody's going, oh, you know, you know that's the stuff of this world. You open up your wallet and look inside. You know what's in there? 
Chuck E. Cheese tickets. But when Jesus comes into the heart and into the life, and he shows you what value really is, all of that stuff becomes perfectly clear. Perspective becomes perfectly clear on all of that. You realize the things that are really valuable are, first of all, him, himself, his kingdom, the people that he saved, the souls that he came to redeem, the eternal life that he's given to us, the kingdom and the promise, the word of God and his spirit that does a work in my life and changes me from the inside, the water of life. That's what really satisfies. See, with Jesus, my identity is not in what I do or don't do. It's not in my successes or my failures. My value is in that I'm called by him, that I belong to him a child of God as we sang those words tonight. I'm not identified by the things I do, my family name, the country I was born in. I'm identified by God. He tells me who I am. I'm who He says I am. And it's a whole new life that we have in Him. See, when I'm disconnected from God, then I have to draw from the wrong well and I end up like Solomon. I hate my life, I hate my job, and I'm depressed. But when I'm connected to God, that's where there's satisfaction in this life and in the world to come. Maybe you're here tonight, we're going to close, and maybe you've drifted. You're a Christian, but you've found yourself searching for something, and you're in a place tonight where you would say, you know what, I'm caught between the screen and the glass. I've lost my sense of purpose. I know it happens to me, in all honesty. There's times when I find I'm there. What am I to do? I'm to recognize it and I'm to come to him in honesty and to ask him to forgive. And I say, Lord, I've screwed up again. I, I've, I've been seeking it in something else and Lord, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling the dryness inside. And I'm not making you any promises, God, that I'm never going to do it again or that I'm never going to be here again. But Lord, would you please renew me in your spirit and revive me in my life and make me new again? If you're here tonight and maybe that's you, I just want to pray for you right now. Father, I just ask in Jesus' name that you would come upon each of us and that you would help us, Lord, that we would recognize and realize, Lord, that there is no life in anything that this world gives, but that you would help us, Lord, to have it only in you, only in your Son. So restore us, revive us, and renew us, Lord, and teach us, Lord, that it's in you we thank you, Father, that you provide a way, that you provide a door. And I pray for anyone that might be here tonight that doesn't yet know you personally. I pray that something that I've said would compel, that would ignite, Lord, a hunger, a desire, a step towards you. And so we thank you, Lord, for these things that you inspired Solomon to write. May they be a guide to us, O Lord. And may your word continue with us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.